Here's God's word. Mark 1, verse 32 through 39. When evening came after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Thanks, Breck. All right, we're still in what you might call the prologue of the gospel of Mark. Mark is giving us context for what Jesus' earthly life and ministry were like before he begins to move into more and more specific stories. And so if you were here last week, we saw a summary of the words of Jesus. The message that Jesus is going around proclaiming is the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Those are his words. That's his message. And on our passage this morning, we have sort of an encapsulation of the works of Jesus. He's traveling around and he begins in the region of Galilee and then he begins to travel further and spread out more. And as he's traveling around, he's mainly doing three things. He's preaching and teaching. He's healing the sick. And he's casting out demons. So he's proclaiming, he's healing, and he's exorcising. Not exercising, although he's getting his steps in to be sure, but exercising, casting out demons. And as we progress through this series in Mark, try to keep the message of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus closely connected in your mind. Jesus came to show and to tell what the kingdom of God is like. So he uses parables and analogies and sometimes direct description to say this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a seed. It's like a small child. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. But then in his works, in his miracles, he shows that the kingdom of God is a place where disease is deleted, the spiritual forces of evil are defeated, and truth and love reign supreme. Now, there's a lot that we could focus on in this passage, not not least of which is the whole demon thing, okay? These demon stories in the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament are difficult for us to reckon with in our modern context. And I'm not necessarily going to resolve that this morning, but let me make two quick observations, okay? First of all, the Bible describes a world that is much more physically, spiritually integrated than you and I typically imagine it. As modern Westerners, because of kind of our philosophical heritage, we generally see the physical and the spiritual as separate, as distinct, or at least we pretend that we do. But the Bible describes them as inseparable and even interwoven. And Jesus himself operates as if physical afflictions and spiritual afflictions really aren't that different from his perspective. Importantly, 
we shouldn't take that to mean that every sort of physical ailment that we experience in this life has like a demonic connection or anything like that. It is possible to overemphasize those spiritual forces of evil in the world, but I don't think that that's the end of the spectrum that most of us in this room fall on most of the time. The Bible describes a world where the spiritual and the physical are interacting with and affecting each other all of the time. The kingdom of God is breaking in and confronting the evil forces in the world. And Jesus spoke and lived as if the world was highly spiritually integrated, spiritually enchanted. Okay? And so the point there is that as you grow as a follower of Jesus, it's likely that you will begin to see the world that way too. As you live more holy as a follower of Jesus, don't be surprised if you also start to see the world as spiritually enchanted. And don't be surprised if you start to take spiritual afflictions, your own and other people's, as seriously as you take physical ailments. Don't be surprised if your prayer life starts to gravitate towards spiritual warfare. So one, the Bible describes a world full, a world that is spiritually and physically integrated, but also two, Jesus has immense power on both of those planes. He has immense power over both of those realms. Jesus, the king of the kingdom and the embodiment of its power and love, heals people with a touch. And he casts out spiritual tormentors with a word. He rules unstoppably over the physical and the spiritual So in other words, when it comes to life in this world and life in the kingdom, it is not so much about what you know as it is about who you know. And that brings us back kind of to our main idea for this morning, okay? So demon tangent over. We're going to have more stories uh, about that in the future, and so we'll get to talk about that more. If you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about them. But okay, back to the main kind of thought for this morning. This morning, I want us to consider one question, just one question. We're going to do something a little bit different. I just want us to consider one question, but it's a big one. And in fact, it might be one of the biggest ones that we face in this life. Okay, here it is. If Jesus can heal all of our afflictions, what about the times when he doesn't? The obvious implication of this passage and the many other stories in Mark is that Jesus can and does heal in the many various senses of that word. And we should pray for healing, ask Jesus for healing, and we should be aware, have our eyes open to the fact that he often answers those prayers, right? Sometimes we, we focus so much on the times when those prayers go unanswered that we don't notice he's answering those prayers for healing and for help all the time, okay? But what about when he doesn't? If Jesus is this powerful, if he can heal disease and defeat evil so readily and decisively, then what are we supposed to make of things when Jesus doesn't heal? I think anybody who reads these stories of Jesus with integrity, if you can read them with an honest heart, that question is lingering just below the surface. If this is what Jesus is able to do, why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he do it in my life with this circumstance, this suffering that I am dealing with? This isn't just a theoretical question. Is it? There are people in this room, and Breck's prayer, I thought, highlighted this so well. There are people in this room this morning that are in the midst of severe suffering, sickness, chronic pain, degenerative disease, cancer, death staring you right in the face. And that's to say nothing of the spiritual suffering that we experience, right? A struggle with sin that we just can't seem to get past, or a deep feeling of depression or shame disconnectedness from God or other people, a sense of spiritual frustration or oppression. And maybe worst of all, 
There are many people in this room who know what it feels like when it's not you, but your children who are dealing with those sorts of afflictions, with that sort of pain, right? What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to feel when Jesus doesn't heal? Many here this morning are carrying a heavy burden of pain and sorrow, and this passage seems to suggest that Jesus could do something about it. So what about when he doesn't? Now, there are probably a few people, and it's either you're, you're kind of in a, a good life stage, right, or you're in denial like me most of the time, right? There are probably a few people are here that are like, okay, that's not my story right now. I don't have a major instance of suffering in my life. But even, okay, even if that is the case, I want to challenge you to dig into some of sort of the, the micro sufferings that fill each of our lives every single day, those body pains that get more and more noticeable as you age, Moments of family discord that pop up more often than we would like. Small but regular flare-ups of anxiety and anger and arrogance, frustration at your job, frustration in your marriage, a struggle with infertility, a relationship, an important relationship that feels slightly but irreparably fragmented. That nagging hum in the back of our minds of insecurity, insignificance, or dissatisfaction that never seems to totally go away. Again, the implication of this passage is that Jesus could do something about it. So what are we supposed to think when he doesn't? Big life-altering suffering or little daily pains, physical afflictions or spiritual, if Jesus can do something about them, what do we make of life when he doesn't? Okay, now... Let that marinate. That's our question for this morning. And let me take a step back and put my cards on the table here, okay? I am going to attempt, I'm going to intentionally attempt to not answer the question this morning, okay? At least maybe not in the way that we would expect, okay? I think I'm going to say at least two things that are sort of sound borderline heretical, and I am going to make an effort to not answer this question, okay? And here's why. Right? I think for most and maybe for all of my life, I have been trained to find the quick and easy answer to life's big, difficult questions. It probably ha- it, I, mean, I think it has something to do with my family of origin. It, it definitely has something to do with the church that I grew up in and the friends that I surrounded myself with and the school that I went to, the culture I'm a part of. Okay? And it probably has something to do with my personality. And so when you combine an intellectually oriented family and church situated in an upper middle class suburban community of kind of type A high achiever tendencies and a group of friends that love each other but also compete and kind of made fun of each other when someone cried too much or showed too much weakness. And then, and here's, okay, here's the most dangerous ingredient. When you mix in a healthy dose of biblical knowledge, Bible information, right? The result is a person who, when he's confronted with suffering, whether in the world or in his own life, he quickly, expediently finds the best Bible answer to the difficult question to try to fix it, to minimize it, to try to harden against feeling it. And that's me. That's historically, that's what I have done. Maybe that's some of you too. I'm going to try not to do that this morning. My wife asked me after first service, I said, is there any feedback you have for my sermon, which is something I only ask when I'm in a place of like deep security and safety. 
And she said, are you going to tell people how bad you are at this? <laughs> she didn't actually, she didn't say it quite that directly, but she was like, are you going to tell people that you're not very good at actually doing this? So that's my confession. I'm going to try not to, all right? Now, I've told you all this before, all right? But when I was in college, I can remember going to at least three formal debates on the problem of evil, so these formal debates, usually in kind of this big uh, sort of con concert hall or meeting room with that big philosophical question, if God is good and all-powerful, then why does evil exist in the world? And you can see how our question this morning is a subset of that big question, right? If God is good and in control, why is there so much bad in the world, right? If Jesus can heal this way, then why doesn't he always do it? Right? And in fact, the question, it sounds a little bit more poignant and maybe even a little bit more inappropriate when we ask, when we put Jesus' name in the question. Right. So I go to these debates, and they were always well attended, and I think most of the people there really had a deep desire to know, if God, why evil? And on each occasion, the person representing the God side of the debate, by the way, was always a Christian, because for some reason, there's always kind of this assumption that it's Christians who bear the burden of proof when it comes to answering this question. Okay, which is in itself interesting. But in any case, the Christian person would stand up and lay out this thoughtful, multifaceted answer to the problem of evil using Bible verses and logical proofs to try to make their argument. And here's the thing, all right, this is important. I don't want to brush over this this morning. The Bible does give answers to the problem of evil. And in fact, I think the Bible offers the most coherent and comprehensive framework for understanding suffering in the world out of any belief system that exists. Okay? But, here's, all right, here's the thing, and this is the first heretical sounding thing that I'm going to say this morning. Right? The Bible gives answers to the problem of evil. It gives philosophical answers to the problem of evil, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. Right? Every time that I would go to one of these debates, when it was over, you would always have this sense of, okay, that was impressive. That was a really smart sounding argument. And everybody here still has the same question that they came in with. Right? If God is good and in control, then why is there so much bad? And that's because no matter how philosophically minded or intellectually oriented you think that you are, none of us are ever actually asking that question in the abstract. Right? What we really mean is, if God is good and he's here, then what do I do with all of this suffering in my life? What do I do with these struggles and these sins in my life? Let me put a hypothetical situation to you. Okay? I want you to imagine that you're in the midst of a season of serious suffering. Maybe, maybe you don't have to imagine that this morning at all. You're in a season of, of suffering and confusion and one day you receive a letter in the mail and you open up this letter and you begin to read it and you find that over the course of a few pages, it gives you a profound and even a perfect explanation of the suffering that you're going through. It's a perfectly reasoned, perfectly worded explanation of why. In the midst of your severe suffering, what would you do with that letter? I think that I would crumple it up and throw it in the trash, right? I certainly wouldn't post it on my refrigerator. It doesn't make the suffering any easier, and in fact, it might make it worse because now we say, okay, I understand what's going on and I still hate this. I still don't want this. 
what we need to remember is that the Bible and the stories of Jesus in the Bible are not a philosophical discourse about the problem of evil. That's not what the Bible is. And often, in the midst of suffering, we ask the question, why? But is that what we actually need? Or is it possible that searching for a why is a way of trying to maintain some semblance of control or of numbing our heart to the pain that we're experiencing? And sometimes informed, biblically aware Christians are the most guilty of that expedient solution. Talking to myself as much as anyone in the room there. Here's how the counselor, Larry Crabb, describes this. He says, the tendency of most of us is to look for a way to wrap the painful questions in pretty paper. We want to provide an answer that settles things on a positive note, or when that seems out of reach, at least closes down an uncomfortable inner discussion. Another strategy for avoiding such confusion is to respond to a troubling situation with an exclusive focus on what should be done about it. Our mind grasps for solutions. But sometimes a strong determination to meet a tough problem head on can grow out of a stronger desire to avoid the churning of unresolved confusion in our souls. There are biblical truths that deal with the tough questions, but when legitimate truth, listen to this, when legitimate truth is offered for the purpose of shutting down hard questions, that truth becomes a cliche. It's frightening to learn that life is out of our control but it's far better to spend sleepless nights in confused weeping than to become dispassionately efficient in our manner of relating. With the problem of evil generally, and especially when it comes to our personal, painful, confusing afflictions, right, the suffering in our life that we really experience, God doesn't send an explanatory letter he sends a person. He doesn't give us the why, or at least usually he doesn't give us the whole why in this life. Instead, he gives us the who, which is what we actually need. Right? Many of us know this because we've experienced it. It's not so much that I need to know why in the midst of suffering. It's that I need to know who is with me in the midst of it. Think about who Jesus is. Think about who he came to be. He's the eternal son of God who became a human and more than that, who was born into poverty and pain for the express purpose of experiencing our suffering. Isaiah 53 calls him a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. We just sang it together, man of sorrows. Right? What a name for the son of God who came. Hebrews 2 says that he had to become our perfect savior, our complete savior through suffering. And so he took on flesh and blood to experience our suffering and our struggles. And Psalm 34 says that he is near to the brokenhearted and the savior of the crushed in spirit. We could go even further in that, than that and say that because Jesus is fully God, because he is divine, he understands suffering more entirely than we do. He knows the suffering and the injustice in the world and in each one of our lives in a deep and familiar way. And because he's fully human and he became human to go to the cross to bear the consequences of the evil and the suffering in the world, he's experienced suffering more deeply than we ever will. He carried our sin and our suffering upon his shoulders 
on the cross. With each of these stories of healing and mercy in the Gospel of Mark, we should hear Jesus whispering, I know what this really costs, and I am going to pay that cost. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, Jesus prayed for God to take his suffering away, and God said no, exactly so that Jesus could sympathize with us in our deepest suffering and save us. On the cross, Jesus asked why. He cried out in deep anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And the unspoken answer was, so that I never have to forsake them. Tim Keller said that in the midst of our greatest suffering and confusion, we don't always get to know why. We don't always know what the answer is. But because of the cross and because, Jesus, because of Jesus' cry of forsakenness on the cross, we know what the answer is. And it can't be that God has forsaken you. He will never forsake you. Now, okay, as it turns out, the resurrection of Jesus is also God's answer to the big question. Okay? If you know the story, if you know the gospel then you know that our full and final hope is resurrection with Jesus into a life that is free from physical and spiritual suffering forever. But the second sort of heretical sounding thing that I want to say this morning is, if you know that end of the story, don't go there too quickly. Don't jump to the end of the story too easily. If you're a Christian and you know that Jesus' resurrection means your resurrection and your ultimate hope, it's possible, and I would say maybe even it is common, to apply that message expediently. It's possible to use the hope of the resurrection to avoid feeling, really feeling the pain, the death of the situation that we're in. And that's actually counterproductive because that can lead to affirming the resurrection with your brain but never actually experiencing the assurance of the resurrection in your heart. It's when we meet Jesus in the midst of our suffering, which is the real, honest, raw place that he wants to meet us, when we meet him with a deep awareness of our pain and unmet desire and need, that we begin to have an experiential comfort and clarity with him. Jesus shows us this. He shows us this in his own life in the passage that we're considering this morning. Look at at what's going on with Jesus in this story. He is surrounded by people. He is inundated with needs and requests. It says the whole town is coming to him with their worst cases of suffering and need. And people are coming late into the night to be healed and to be freed. He's carrying the burdens of many, many people, not to mention his own pain and his own impending death. And to top it all off, he's probably very tired. Verse 35 says that he gets up early the next morning and he withdraws to a deserted place, or some translations say a desolate place. He withdraws to a desolate place and he spends time in prayer with his father. At the beginning, I said that Jesus' ministry was characterized by three activities, but okay, here's the fourth, and to Jesus, it's actually the first, right? He's always getting away from the noise and the pressure and the needs, and he's finding a quiet, desolate place, and he's communing with his father there. 
And for us, especially in deep suffering, what we need more than anything is to meet Jesus in that desolate place and experience his friendship, his love, his withness with us. In the midst of our afflictions, when we ask the hard question, Jesus, why aren't you doing something about this? That's the exact question that we should be asking. But the key is, are you coming to Jesus with that question? In the midst of that question, are you coming to him through that difficult question? Again, it's not what you know. It's not the answer that you find to that question. It's who you know. It's who's with you in the midst of that confusion. Jesus isn't dishonored by our hard, confusing questions. He's actually honored in our honest questions and struggles and doubts, and he invites us to come to him to withdraw from the world and to come to him in a deserted place and pour out our confusion in the context of communion with him. This is so important, right? And again, this is something I'm reminded of even this morning, I am not good at this. I'm still learning this, but I desperately need this truth. You realize that the gospel really has two truths that give us help in the midst of suffering, right? The one that we know, the one that we're the most familiar with is Jesus rose from the dead, and so I have the hope of of a resurrection out there in the future, right? But if we move too quickly to that one, we forget the other good news of the gospel, which is that Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief and with suffering, and that he loves to meet us in the midst of our pain and sorrow. And we desperately need that. We desperately need that. I desperately need that. And again, as someone with a background of finding the expedient Bible answers to life's problems, I'm so glad that like really just about a year ago, a few people at Hope grabbed me and said, do you realize that you do this all the time? Right, y'all, y'all know who one of them was. Annoyingly, one of them was Matt Guzzi. And he was like, you realize that every single time there's suffering in your life, you jump so quickly to the right Bible answer. But have you ever just sat in it? And then God gave me, has lovingly given me occasion after occasion to do that this year as I've been confronted with sorrow and pain in my own life and in the lives of other people. And I think what I'm learning is that Jesus meets me there. One more quote from Larry Crabb. When life makes no sense, when moments of absolute confusion shred our soul, there are only three things we can do. One, we can abandon our claim to Christian belief and search for immediate relief and happiness. Two, we can run from confusion as a woodsman would from a hungry bear. A, quote, Christian strategy for ending confusion is to deny the reality of disturbing questions behind a renewed commitment to the truth of God. Such a strategy produces rigid dogmatism, which saps our faith of its vitality. In the face of confusion and pain, three, in the face of confusion and pain, we may choose to cling with disciplined tenacity to Christ, even as our struggle with confusion continues unabated. Facing confusion with honesty gives strong faith the opportunity to develop. Now, I think that one of the best passages in the Bible that tries to describe this dynamic to us is Romans chapter 5. I heard a story from a pastor recently about a man in his church who was diagnosed with a degenerative disease. He knew he was going to die from this, and him and his wife committed to memorizing the first five verses of Romans chapter 5 together, and they would recite it to, to one another all the time as his condition worsened. 
And as he approached the end of his life, this pastor was called to the side of his hospice bed, and he started doing kind of some of the general, giving some of the general Christian answers that we're prone to giving in tough situations like that. And the man told him, that's not what I need. Where's my wife? And she came in the room and she got right in his face and she recited Romans 5, 1 through 5 to him. And then he said, okay, it's okay, you can go. Jesus is with you. So what I want to do this morning is to use this passage to give us a moment to meet Jesus in the quiet place, even to meet Jesus in a desolate place. And you'll see that the flow of this passage, it begins with the gospel. Jesus has done everything necessary to make you right with God, and you have hope of the resurrection, right? But then it goes somewhere unexpected, and it says, therefore, we boast in our afflictions. We actually we abide in our affliction and in our suffering and we meet Jesus there and the way that Jesus gives us assurance of the hope that we have in the future is by giving us the Holy Spirit to pour his love into our hearts in the present. If the resurrection is purely an intellectual bit of information out in the future for you, then what you need is for the Spirit to come and pour the love of God into your heart right now to convince you at a heart level that it's actually true. That's my prayer for us during this time. So what I'm going to do, and I'm going to admit, I'm going to ask us to be quiet, and I'm going to read this passage very slowly, okay? Now, we know it's been pretty quiet in here this morning, but the one thing that could interrupt is a, 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 a child, right? And so here's a little, just a little uh, pro tip for, for Sunday morning worship when there are children in the service. Anytime that you hear a child cry out at an inappropriate time, just claim the cry, the babbling, the little noises of that child as your own heart's cry to your father. Because your heart is crying out to your heavenly father through the little cries of that child, even if you don't recognize it, okay? So if that happens to happen here, just, let, just keep going, just claim that, that cry as your own, okay? Let me encourage you to close your eyes, Take a few deep breaths and slow down. And if you can, try to inhabit that desolate place where we meet Jesus. Can you be honest and vulnerable with yourself and with God about the the pain, the frustration, the confusing questions, the afflictions? What is weighing on your heart? Can you meet Jesus there? Jesus, that's my prayer, that you would meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit and pour your love into our hearts. Therefore, since we have been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have access through Jesus by faith into the grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now listen to this. Claim these words as your own this morning. Not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us, 
because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, claim these words as, as your prayer to meet Jesus in the midst of pain and sorrow this morning. Not only that, but we boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Spirit, would you pour the love of God into our hearts this morning? Would you teach us to be a little bit more honest with ourselves and with you about the real pain that we experience in this life? And would you meet us with your presence and with your love in such a way that we have assurance for the future? I pray even now through this meal that you've given us, Jesus, that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would convince us more and more of your love and give us an experience of your presence. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.